She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Cohen spoke on his own behalf to the judge, saying he's ultimately responsible for his acts, but not solely responsible. He did say it was his weakness and blind loyalty to Donald Trump that will land him behind bars for facilitating questionable Russian business deals and dishing out hush money. In court, Michael Cohen said he worked in coordination with and at the direction of Mr. Trump for the principal purpose of influencing the election. That's why he made the payments. And that kind of testimony could potentially be very damaging to the president. It's interesting that these uh, allegations against the president are coming from his own Justice Department. This is not about Robert Mueller. This is about the Justice Department. The reason this came up when he was running for president was because this is a good time to shake him down for money. Yeah, this was their timing, not his. And now, Stacey Washington. Wowza, wowza, wowza. I, I just, oh, it's just so, it's like crazy pants. So uh, what do we have going on right now? Well, hour two of Stacey on the right, that's what. Guess what we have? We have Darren Bask, Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy at the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies, Heritage Foundation. He's going to join us next segment to talk about the water rule and why people all over the country are celebrating this new development from the Trump administration. He's going to join in next segment. Right now, we have a whole lineup. I, I hope we can get it all in during this hour. And we'll take your calls as well, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Um, we're going to talk about this uh, White House Christmas party for the press. Canceled. <laughs> it's got canceled. <laughs> so why am I laughing about that? Because they're mean. If you've ever met, I don't know if you've ever met a, um, a person who's a hardcore liberal. I'm not talking about, you know, friends and family or people who are Democrats who, you know, they're, they're, they're regular people too. Because they're, we used to have it where everyone was a regular person and they had a political viewpoint and you rarely found out what it was. Now we have a huge segment of our population that's been radicalized to the point where you, they just can't be nice to you if they find out that you're not one of them. They just can't be nice to you. And I can tell you, you know, I'm, I've developed a pretty thick skin in some ways surrounding what I do for a living in politics. I think the, the arrows that come from the same side on the right, they're the ones that actually hit their mark. And I'm like, I can't believe that. Like, that is upsetting. But when it comes from the left, it's kind of it's a, a mix of amusement, shock and, you know, a little bit of disgust. You're like, what did you just email? So. It's interesting to see them, the way they're reacting to all of this. But there's, it's, such a, it's, it's just weird that you can't have people just be normal about you not being on the same side as them. And it's not that it's not normal. It's kind of like almost mentally ill slash rude is what you get into with people who've been radicalized by the political landscape today. So we'll be discussing um, this this it's breaking news. President Trump has canceled the White House Christmas party. These people don't deserve a Christmas party. They've been awful to not just the president, but to his staff. And they've been very unprofessional. And this Christmas party was something that New York news people, print and television would fly in to the White House, fly into D.C. and attend this party at the White House every year. 
And what they're saying is they're just not having it. Like it's just been canceled. They're having other parties and some print and television journalists will be invited to those parties as is normal. Uh, Some of them are on every list, but the actual party that's specifically for the press canceled. We're also going to talk about uh, the great Senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill, who's on her way out. She's been making the news rounds because it's time for her to go. And she has her farewell speech up on C-SPAN. I got an email alert from them about that. And then we're also going to be talking about the Google CEO. I mean, he just was in rare form with himself uh, up up there, just just saying whatever he felt like saying and expecting us to believe it. I, I find it comical that he thought he could say that stuff and we were all going to be like, yeah, we believe it. We're good. No, we're not good, Google man. We're not. So we'll be talking about him. And the Boy Scouts have just recently announced they're on the verge of bankruptcy. And I, I would gloat about this, honestly, that, you know, you guys know who I am. Nobody here is new. If you are new, welcome. And, and God bless you. And I'm so glad you're here. But I can't gloat about the Boy Scouts because, well, first of all, our son was a Boy Scout. And when he was so little, sometimes I think about the Boy Scouts and all the fun that my husband and our son had together going on those camping trips with the other boys I still remember the little boys they'd all be together with those little those little blocks of wood shaping those little cars and then they'd have the little races the little it was like some kind of go-kart race they would do and this was something that my husband and our son it was their time their thing to go together and my husband was into it he would go to the meetings and he knew all the other dads And when they would go on those camping trips, I mean, it was like they were packing to leave the country. They would have everything under the sun and their meals that they ate while they were out there. So often we women folk, we'd drive, I'd drive my minivan and my husband would drive his, his vehicle. We'd take the kids out there. You know, a bunch of parents would drive out with the kids because not every boy would have his father sleep over. But a lot of the dads would because they really enjoyed sitting around the campfire and the campfire and they would have their little block of wood and their whittling knife and they'd be whittling around the fire. I mean, it was just, I'm, I'm telling you, it was just, it was magnificent. They would have chicken and they would barbecue it over an open fire. I mean, they ate well. They, they have, they'd have a pot of chili. Sometimes they'd have soup as well, as well as the chili. So chili, a different kind of soup and barbecued chicken over an open fire. They would set up a campfire that with a grate and they would it was just amazing. So we'd go out, me and the girls would ride out in the minivan, my husband, our son in his vehicle. We'd get out there, help them set up a little bit. But the rule was all the women had to be gone either at the end of dinner or by the time it got dark. So if it got dark first and we still hadn't eaten, we could stay around to eat. But then after that, we had to go because the, the boys had stuff to do with their fathers. It was Boy Scout time. And so we would go out and we'd eat their delicious fried chicken or barbecued chicken and we would uh, tuck into the soup or the chili or whatever we wanted. And then we'd get back in the minivan and drive home, me and the girls. And they would come back from those camping trips. Just, it was like they'd been renewed, you know, out in the outdoors. Sometimes the weather would be horrible and they would just enjoy themselves. And our son would come back, his little face would just be shining for, you know, just all that uninterrupted time with his father and other boys. And so that is why I cannot have a gloaty, look, I told you that was a horrible idea thing about the Boy Scouts because 
our culture warriors, these social justice warriors have destroyed something so special, so right, so beautiful. It was a flawed organization. There were always going to be bad people who tried to mix in and with the leadership. But for the majority of young boys who went through Boy Scouts, especially those who went on to earn Eagle Scout rank, it was a formative part of their youth that they wouldn't trade for anything. And so it's not just the Girl Scouts who are a part of the demise of the Boy Scouts, but it's the Boy Scouts bowing down to the LGBT agenda and allowing homosexuals to be a part of the leadership of the scouting organizations. That that was the first thing that drove families away from the Boy Scouts. And they thought, well, there's enough you know, progressive families that can take the place of these old bigoted families and we're still going to survive. And they couldn't have been more wrong. Boy Scouting is a part of that more conservative, traditional viewpoint of Americans, the Americans who also, you know, are big savers, the ones who they have their woodpile is always all fully stacked and stacked properly for ventilation before it gets cold. The ones who spend their time putting aside a little bit for if there is an emergency more, and I don't mean three days worth or a month's worth, but they keep six months of provisions on hand. People who buy a quarter of a cow or a side of beef so that they have their freezer full for the whole winter. People like that are the ones who also felt like Boy Scouts as a Christian organization. Even families who weren't Christians but wanted their children to have that moral center, they were the ones who participated and they were the ones who were driven off by the Boy Scout leadership bowing down to this progressive agenda that was only meant to eliminate the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts because you are not supposed to be able to have activities that are for a single gender. And by bowing down, they lose. So now we're talking about them. You know, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. And this is, this is truly just the saddest thing. They're considering declaring bankruptcy. And this is according to the Wall Street Journal. The Wednesday report comes in the wake of sinking membership and multiple controversies surrounding the 108-year-old organization, including sex abuse allegations, which are repugnant and horrible and should have been dealt with properly, and their controversial decision to drop the word boy from their name and allow girls into the organization. Chicago law firm Sidley Austin has reportedly been hired to assist in what would be a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, so it wouldn't go away. It would be reorganized and debtors would walk away with nothing. As the organization has made decisions deemed to be more inclusive, such as openly allowing, out, allowing openly gay scouts in 2013 and scout masters in 2015, and the decision in 2018 to allow girls membership, their numbers have declined sharply from over 4 million members at their peak to 2.3 million members, so they say, at present. And I would seriously doubt that number. Like, I, I would just be wondering if that number was accurate. But those numbers will likely continue to decline. Earlier this year, the Mormon Church announced an end to their long-standing partnership with the Boy Scouts. The Mormons have actually formed their own program for boys. It will begin in 2020. And once it launches, it could cost the Boy Scouts another third of its members. The church was reportedly deeply troubled by the group's decision to allow openly gay leaders. Additionally, the Boy Scouts have come under criticism for keeping records of sex abuse perpetrated by scoutmasters called the perversion files under wraps for decades instead of revealing them to the public. Mike Rowe, who's an outstanding uh, individual, wrote in May that we were watching the death of the Boy Scouts of America. 
And here's a quote from him from that piece. And, and he's, he's brilliant. And I'm, I'm, you know, so we're, we're blessed to have him making commentary on the, on these things. In my opinion, this kind of attrition can only be explained by an increasing lack of relevance or the perception of irrelevance. Right now, there's a perception that the Boy Scouts have gone soft. That's the real tragedy, because I can't think of anything more needed in our country today than a youth organization that offers kids the same experience I underwent in the basement of Kenwood Church. Why? Because our country's current obsession with safe spaces is destroying character faster than the Boy Scouts of today can build it. And we see that with, um, it's another story that I saw that I'm just, I mean, it's appalling. And I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but you have to be informed. And so this, this story, what could be worse than this? I mean, honestly, this is a story out of Mishawaka, Indiana. You got this high school football player and he's killed his girlfriend. She, he's Aaron Trejo. He's 16 years old and he's been charged as an adult with murder. He killed Brianna Roselang because she was pregnant. But get this. He actually admitted that he was angry that his girlfriend waited until after it was too late to have an abortion to tell him that she was pregnant so he couldn't make her get an abortion. And when he realized that she was going to have a baby and there was nothing that could be done about it lawfully, he killed her. Then, after killing her, he put her body in a restaurant dumpster in their hometown. It's about 130, or sorry, it's about 80 miles east of Chicago, Illinois. He disposed of her body in the dumpster. Then he walked to a river and threw her phone and the knife that he killed her with into that river because he said, you know, he'd been planning to kill her for about a week and he knew that he had to dispose of some of the items far away so that he, you know, they couldn't be linked back to him. Now, Ruth Lang, the girlfriend, was a manager of the Mishawaka High School football team. So she was one of the football team managers and he was a player on the team. She was last seen at home around 11 p.m. on Saturday Her family called the police about 4.30 a.m. on Sunday after they got the feeling something wasn't right. She was stabbed to death and choked to death. And she just was six months pregnant. And he just couldn't get over the fact that he couldn't force her to have an abortion. How's that for a safe space? All right, when we get back, we're going to have Darren Bass, Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy Heritage Foundation. Stay right there. Here's Walker Wildman for Redeem Clean Laundry Products. Not only do you get a great product and you get to obviously clean your clothes, get the stains out and use the multi-surface cleaner to clean your countertops and use the dryer sheets. You're doing all of this and the money's going to support the work of American Family Association. Redeem Clean Laundry Products were developed by AFA supporters Lynn Ingram and Jim Duncan to assist in funding the mission of the American Family Association. Redeem Clean products work as well as or better than other products on the market. They're environmentally safe, biodegradable, and they're made right here in the United States. The great thing about Redeem Clean is not only is the product great, but it goes to support a great cause, and that is the work of American Family Association. For clean laundry and a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. 
visit redeemclean.afastore.net. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, one song we often sing during the Christmas season is, What Child Is This? William Chatterton Dix wrote the lyrics in 1865 when he was an insurance company manager and been struck by a severe illness. After a spiritual renewal in his life, he wrote a number of hymns, and this one was set to the tune of the traditional English folk song, Greensleeves. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whose shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him law, the babe, the son of Mary. This hymn then asks who this child is that was found by the shepherds, not in a palace, but in a manger. Why lies him in such a mean estate where ox and donkeys are feeding? The next verse reminds us that Jesus is essentially born a peasant king. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high, the virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. While shepherds must have wondered who was born in a manger, this verse reminds us that the wise men apparently believed him to be royalty and brought him gifts. Both shepherds and the wise men had access to baby Jesus because he wasn't born in a palace that would have guards and bureaucratic protocols. Isn't this a great picture for us today? All of us have access to Jesus and merely need to place our trust and faith in Him. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your ears and your eyes if you're watching on one of our live streams. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's also a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. We have Darren Bax. Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy, Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Thank you, Darren, for joining the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So let's talk about this, uh, some excitement, a little bit of uh, good news on the horizon here. The Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Corps of Engineers have proposed a new rule that would help clarify what waters are regulated under the Clean Water Act. Why is this important? Well, it's important because the EPA and the Corps for a long time have been saying that they can regulate waters that for most people do look at it and say it's a, a, it's a puddle, and that, that's problematic. And in 2015, the Obama administration came up with a rule that really kind of took the issue to kind of a whole new level. So just as an example, imagine you have like a, de- a, de- a depression in land, and it's land the entire year, but you have a really big rainstorm and that depression in the land holds some water for a couple of days. Under the Obama administration rule, that very likely could be a water that could be regulated by the federal government. So the Trump administration is coming up with a new rule that would bring some common sense to what waters are covered and regulated under the Clean Water Act. Okay, Darren, I'm going to ask a question that, I mean, okay. you know, just work with me here. 
<laughs> but <laughs> regular people probably want to know how the government knows that you have a little bit of water that's a puddle on your property. <laughs> like, how how would they even know about it? Well, you know, uh, that's a pretty good question. Uh, if, for example, you're trying to develop your property, you need to secure a certain permit, ah. potentially. Okay. And they'll figure it out that way. So um, they, when they come over to visit, if there's water there. <laughs> yeah, they, they will actually, that's exactly what can happen. In fact, it can get so extreme that, at least under the Obama administration rule, where even if visually, if you're just looking at the water yourself, you would have no idea that it would be considered a regulated water. If they have like aerial photographs that can kind of establish that it's the type of water that should be regulated, that could actually trigger coverage under the law. So it's not like many landowners have aerial, you know, airplanes to fly around to figure out what water is to be regulated, but the government might, and they might use that against you. Well, they don't actually need aeroplanes. Um, if you go to Google Maps and you click on an address, you can see you know, that you can zoom in and out and you can see what it looks like. And what they do is they update that periodically. So I've seen properties that I've looked at aerially. Like if you check them maybe a couple times a year, you can see that sometimes the aerial picture is during the winter and sometimes it's during the summer. But and so what you can for any ideas. Um, well, I know I don't want to, but <laughs> well, I don't want to, but possible. It's updated pretty frequently, Darren. That's what I'm. That's uh, that's the point I'm making, which is probably problem. not good. Probably probably not helpful. But um, so this rule is where where are we in the process? Are we in the public comment, or are we at the point where this is a this is a thing? This is going to reverse all this nonsense. Um, it's in a it's a proposed rule. So the okay. Trump administration, first of all, had to get rid of the Obama rule, and that's kind of the whole process. So this week they've propose the rule that will define the term waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. And that's the terminology that's used for what the waters that are to be regulated under the Clean Water Act. So it's a the comment period hasn't started yet. Um, it starts as soon as the rule is published in what's called the Federal Register, which will be any day now. So there's a 60-day comment period for the public to kind of chime in. And I I do want to kind of lay out real quickly just a couple of principles. One, the Clean Water Act was always envisioned as a, a law where the states would take the lead on addressing water pollution, and the federal government was kind of a partner in that. And by when the federal government tries to regulate every single water, they're pushing out the state, and the states no longer are actually taking the lead. And that's the big problem. What the Trump administration is trying to do is actually get back to what the law actually says. Um, not just the, the Water Act, but also kind of actually following the Constitution. Well, Darren, doesn't this, and I know, you know, so I'm a Trump supporter, and I get accused a lot of, well, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, and you're constantly promoting, you know, the things that he says he wants to do. But the fact is, this is something that we should be in favor of, regardless of political party, because the people who are best able to manage, let's say, um, protected waters, or whether or not a pond is a protected water mass, it would be the people who actually live in the state where it's located, because that's someone you could say, come out to my property and take a look. This is just where I literally, I need to put some more dirt in here to level off my yard. But instead, it's collected a bit of water here, and it's going to drain off. It's going to evaporate. So this is not an issue 
you'd have someone local come out and take a look and you could explain it to them, maybe show them some of your own photographs and take care of the issue. But with the way the Obama administration was doing it, it's some unelected bureaucrat in D.C. who's never going to see your property, who's telling you that you can't you can't sell that because there's some frog that might want to live in that little pond depression area there that's not not even there the whole year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that too often gets lost in this is, first of all, Congress agreed with what you just said. When when Congress passed the Clean Water Act, it, like I said, the law under you know stressed the importance of the states and the local government. And over time, the, the bureaucrats try and the federal bureaucrats try to grab more power and more power. And so the critics of this rule, they won't they won't ever address the fact that Congress wanted some common sense with this federal regulation. They'll just try to make it seem like, oh, we're not protecting the waters. Well, the states can't protect anything that's not covered by the federal government. Not everything has to be done by the federal government. There's a reason why states and local governments can address these issues and they can do it better. So, I, you know, in many ways, this is a, a this is definitely good for the environment. This is not some business business friendly regulation. That's not the point of it. It's about the environment. It's about having clarity. If I know what the law is, I can actually, for a government agency, you can actually enforce it a lot better. The people that have to comply with the law actually know how to comply with the law. That all means that you're going to have a cleaner environment. Um, and that really comes down to a question of, do you believe the federal government should do every single thing, or do you think there should be some type of division between the states and the federal government? And for too many people, it's about the federal government doing everything. I, I, the part about it that really depresses me is that people like someone would be sitting around thinking about this and think that a federal person is better than a person in the state, specifically because we have these regional differences across the country that really account for communication errors. I, I feel like some of what we see with the federal government heavy handed treatment towards, you know, state entities has to do with communication style and the fact that the people in the federal government are used to bureaucratic speak and they're dealing with people from parts of the country that they've never communicated with them. So they don't know the the proper way to talk to people. And that sounds silly because we all speak English and it shouldn't really be that big of a deal. But we do have serious regional differences in the way people communicate with each other and the way people view government, the way people view bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. I mean, this whole process of having the federal government really take a heavy-handed approach on managing water or resources in individual states instead of having a, a much higher, like, 30,000-foot view, um, it, it's so problematic. And I can't believe people don't see that, that just the basic communication can be the, the start of the problem. I know I, I can't speak part of it. I think there's certainly also a bit of a level of arrogance that somehow the federal experts are somehow more uh, knowledgeable than people on the state level, which is idiotic. Mm-hmm. And I think, look, when Congress gives federal agencies a lot of power and, and allows them to have the discretion to kind of do what they want, well, the, the those bureaucrats are going to grab more and more power. And if that means it comes at the expense of the states, that's fine with them because they want more power. So that that's a huge issue unto itself that needs to be addressed. So, look, if you're going to give the give the bureaucrats a chance to get more power, they're going to take advantage of it. And that's what's happening. 
Well, I'm hopeful that this can move through. Um, so what you're saying, it's in the beginning, it's a proposed rule. I know they have the public comment period. So if all goes well and, you know, normal execution of this type of process, when would you expect to see this become an actual relief mechanism that's that's re- a real rule that's accepted and in use? When would that happen? I would expect the rule to be finalized pretty quickly. Uh, I would expect it in 2019, but I also would expect maybe late 2019. But I would expect, I mean, pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits as well. So how that plays out um, is a big question. Uh, and that's the one of the reasons why really ultimately Congress has to define what waters in the United States, what, what waters are covered. Now, there's a risk because then you have Congress defining it and you can't really trust Congress. But the point is, though, that the Trump administration could come up with the greatest rule in history and a future administration could get rid of it and we go back to what happened before. So that's a concern. But, you know, we certainly want the Trump administration to issue a good rule and finalize it quickly. And I think it would, it would, um, from what I'm saying, I think it would pass legal muster. I think it would survive in the courts, but it becomes, a, it might take a while. And that doesn't help anybody either. Mm. Especially people who are currently battling to not have their, whatever it is, you know, their, their, their land uh, under control of these people who just, it's, it's so nonsensical. It's hard to believe it's a thing, but as I always say, people are going to people and we have to figure out a way to deal with them. Um, yeah. I'm really glad that you're covering this and that we have the opportunity to have a better understanding of exactly what this is. I always thought it was nonsense, waters of the United States. And then when I heard what it was specifically, I was like, oh, I was right. It's total nonsense. The fact that it's still going on two years into the Trump administration, I can't wait for them to th- just get through this process and get rid of this because it's a horrible, horrible idea. Yeah, and I would just say that it's not it, – it re- this rule can impact any property. It's not just like farmers and businesses. It's, you know, if you have some land and you want to build your dream house, it's very possible that you might run into some problems under this law. And under the Clean Water Act, it's not simply civil penalties. It's maybe potentially criminal penalties as well. So it's pretty scary stuff at times. So this, this really needs to be resolved. Mm. Well, let's be hopeful that they can actually get it done. I'm I'm just exhausted from the stupidity that has been permitted to be created into rules. So there should be some kind of stupid meter where you instantly get hit with an anvil like on the cartoons if you propose a rule that's as stupid as this one. I completely support that. I write a paper about it. <laughs> if you do, make sure and put in there that I was wearing my Christmas headband when I, when, when, when I contributed because I'm wearing my Christmas headband with the two little... It's got okay. two little heads on it, and it's it's really it's obnoxious. But this is who I am during the month of December. <laughs> the deal sounds good. Right. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for coming on today and for your work at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Darren Bast, you are the fellow in agricultural policy at the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, Merry Christmas. All right, we are slamming and jamming through the show. Uh, We have time for calls. I want to give you the number, greatest listeners and greatest callers in the known conservative radio universe and also the liberal universe, whatever radio they've got. They don't have much. Uh, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So 
Darren has this, his take on this is so dead on and we have to, we have to be wary. I think this is something that we tackle in our kind of in our prayer prayer closet where we pray for wise people to work in government and we pray for wise people to be uh, put in charge of these agencies, the kind of people who would say, don't, don't ever bring me any garbage like this again. Instead of this becoming an actual rule, the person who was in charge of whether or not they propose rulemaking should have said, wait, so you're saying any body of water, any puddle, any depression on someone's driveway can make their entire property unbuildable and basically unusable just because you want to control the water on their land. We have bigger fish to fry. We have so much more to get done here uh, because as a country, we really do have so much more to get done. And it would have been so good to have had just any bureaucrat in charge that was along the chain of events that led to this water rule just say, this is idiocy. We're not going to put this out. We owe the American people better than this. But Alas, those kinds of people, uh, they either don't work there or they were off or I don't know what, the, what, what, what was the problem, but they didn't, it didn't happen. Uh, so we talked about the Boy Scouts being on the verge of bankruptcy, which I think it is, again, depressing, totally depressing. Um, but I want to get to this alert. I'm... I'm upset about it, but what are you going to do? Um, the feds are investigating President Trump's inauguration. I guess they don't have anything else to do. The Trump inauguration spending is under investigation, criminal investigation, by federal prosecutors looking into whether committee misspent funds and top donors gave money in exchange for, wait for it, access to the Trump administration. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, you mean like the Clintons? Yes, just like that. Only remember the Clintons were never prosecuted. I'd love to know which exactly. Let me look here and see if it says. So they're investigating. Oh, Manhattan. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan are investigating whether the inaugural committee misspent some of the record $107 million they raised from donations. Now, remember, inaugural activities are not paid for by federal tax dollars. The winning campaign has to go out to donors and raise money. And they use that money that they've raised to put on the inauguration. And he raised a record amount of money. And so Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office is trying to make a name for themselves by investigating him criminally. It's another witch hunt. All right. We will be back with more right after these messages. it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Vanetta Flowers had spent years pursuing her dream of running in the Olympics. Unfortunately, in 2000, she faced her fifth knee surgery and her Olympic dreams were gone. But God had something bigger in mind. Vanetta's husband, Johnny, was also a runner and saw a flyer asking track runners to try out for the American bobsled team. Vonetta was uninterested, but went to support her husband. In the first round, Johnny pulled his hamstring and asked Vonetta to stand in for him. The rest is Olympic history. One year later, she stood on the podium to receive a gold medal. Mentor leaders like Vonetta and Johnny, 
know that God is in control of their lives. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The facade is crumbling. Planned Parenthood continually battles the perception that abortion is pretty much all they do. You often hear them talk about the other medical services they provide and that abortion is only a small percentage. Here's proof positive this claim is smoke and mirrors. Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest and the Hawaiian Islands announced they'll no longer provide basic health care services. And they give an honest reason for the change. People are going elsewhere. Community health centers outnumber Planned Parenthood 20 to 1 and provide far more comprehensive health services without doing abortions. So don't be surprised if other affiliates follow suit, further exposing the true agenda of this giant of the abortion industry. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Fate of our farmers. When it comes to the impact of Chinese tariffs on U.S. farm goods, sweet cherries are the canary in the coal mine. Unlike other commodities that can be stored, cherries are perishable. They're picked, packed, and sold right away. When China's tariff hit 50% last July, right in the middle of the harvest, exports to China went from the most profitable to the pits. Growers in Washington state saw their bumper crop lose $86 million in value overnight. Washington Fruit and Produce Company saw exports to China plunge 54%. Extra painful because China pays top dollar for American produce. Growers fear they'll lose their best market to Turkey and South America. Farmers hurt by the tariff war are getting some relief from a one-time $12 billion aid package. But a growing refrain from a national campaign called Tariffs Hurt the Heartland is they want trade, not aid. In Duval, Washington, Dan Springer, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. You've got a right to have whatever politics you have. I mean, we could we could subpoena Fox News and bring them in here and beat them up about how 90 percent of the references on Fox News to Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton are negative. But they've got that right under the First Amendment. You've got a right under First Amendment to have whatever political views you've got. I lead this company without political bias and work to ensure that our products continue to operate that way. To do otherwise would be against our core principles and our business interests. We are a company that provides platforms for diverse perspectives and opinions. And there is no shortage of them amongst our employees. And even if Google were deliberately discriminating against conservative viewpoints, just as Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting and conservative talk radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh discriminate against liberal points of view, that would be its right as a private company to do so, not to be questioned by government. Mm. So that's what you hear from the Democrats. They're justifying the viewpoint discrimination by saying, well, Rush Limbaugh does it. How does Rush Limbaugh discriminate against liberals by by being alive? Rush Limbaugh does not have the power to sway elections and, and to prevent liberals from putting out their information. Anyone who's listening to him is listening to him by choice as it is with any radio host, whether they're a liberal or a conservative. The idea here is that Google is influencing people without their knowledge. 
So you can't tune in to uh, Rush Limbaugh, since that's the person he called out. You can't tune into him without making that decision and saying, I want to be, I want to have my viewpoints challenged or influenced by what he's going to say on his show. But you can be influenced without your knowledge by having information that you would find relevant that you might be searching for suppressed or even kept from you. And in its place, other information that can radically alter your viewpoint or sway you in another direction. That's something Google can do. So this obtuse argument that somehow the existence of very popular radio hosts on the right or television stations like Fox News, that those things are the same as Google, the search engine, using their power to suppress conservative websites, pages, videos, etc., and to promote liberal viewpoints, those two things are not even in the same universe. And I'm so tired of the lies I'm tired of hearing these nincompoops putting forward these false statements and knowing that so many Americans hear that and they're like, yeah, it is the same. No, it's not. No, it isn't. Okay, it's not. So now I'm going to listen to uh, Claire McCaskill, who suggests that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren can't actually win the state of Missouri in 2020 because they're too far to the left. This from the queen of Planned Parenthood, but I guess she's learned a thing or two since she's not going to be going back. It's number four. I do think that what, as a party, we need to do is make sure that we are nominating someone who is inspirational and who can convince uh, the American people that they can make things change. And it's very hard to make things change if you're hanging out at the ends of the spectrum, if you're on opposite sides of the room and, and saying things that you know will never get 60 votes in the Senate. So I think what's, what, what I hope is there's some authenticity with a candidate who will convince independent voters in my state and other states like mine that they have an equation where they can bring people together, where they can kind of repair some of the damage that has been done uh, in, in terms of tribal polarization in this country. I think that's what most Americans want right now, and I think that will be the winning combination for president. Wow. Again, who was that we were just listening to? She sounds like some uh, moderate independent person who's just thinking about the good of the people. It just makes you wonder, why did she even go on television and make that statement? Is she prepping for a run for Missouri governor? What, what, is she, what does she have up her sleeve? Exactly. I mean, I know she had some hard lessons to learn in losing by, I mean, just decisively losing to Josh Hawley who didn't bother to pay her much attention. All of her, her garbage tweets and her uh, accusations, and she had uh, Think Progress and all these other groups sending out these emails about how just the worst kind of slander of this guy. And he didn't, he didn't pay any attention to it at all. He just put his nose to the grindstone and just gutted it out. I mean, visit after visit after visit to the far reaches of the state of Missouri. He didn't leave one community untouched. He campaigned until he couldn't campaign anymore. And he has a lot of energy because he's young and he just kept at it. And he didn't do as many events in uh, the, the large metropolitan areas, St. Louis, Kansas City, Cape Girardeau. I mean, he went, but he didn't, he didn't focus all of his energies there. And I think that's because he knew 
that people in the suburbs of St. Louis who would be voting for him would be voting for him based on him being a Republican and him going against Claire McCaskill. But he needed to get that name ID up in the far reaches of the state. And that's what he worked on. I'm glad of it. I'm glad that he's going to be going there. I hope he's he's primed and ready and that he will not disappoint us. I feel pretty, pretty strongly that he's going to be good. Um, but I, you know, after Kavanaugh, well, you know, we, we don't have any, we have no assurances. We have to keep praying for these people that they would have strength and courage and keep our expectations. As the little girl said in the video, keep our feelings low. Don't let our feelings go up too high or go too low. Keep them in the middle. <laughs> she said, keep your feelings in the middle. So, um, yeah, the, this, this whole idea that they're investigating the Trump inauguration, just another witch hunt, just another thing that they can do to get this news story in the, in the public eye, as opposed to, you know, talking about something else, like the proposed rule on the waters. Um, so there's, there's also some interesting news about travel. Um, the AAA which tracks travel spending and travel uh, for people because, of course, they're, they're an organization that works with people to keep their cars on the road. Um, they're reporting that this holiday season will be a record-breaking year for travel. Numbers released Thursday morning show that 112.5 million people are expected to be traveling in the air and on the roads, which is a 4.4% increase over last year's number. It's the highest number of travelers since AAA started tracking holiday travel in 2001. The numbers break down as 102.1 million people will be traveling by car, 6.7 million people traveling by air, and 3.7 million people traveling by trains, buses, and cruise ships. Sweet. We're anticipating in some cities as much as a quadrupling of travel time. Atlanta's the worst. New York, just behind them. So if a normal trip in Atlanta or New York takes one hour, it's going to take four hours to do that trip. AAA also shows that Thursday, December 20th, from 9.30 to 10.30 p.m. will be the worst time for travel in New York City. And there are more cars on the road, period. Just in New York alone, between 2012 and 2017, the number of registrations for passenger vehicles has gone up significantly, 8.2%. They've also seen an additional 146,000 vehicles registered in the city of New York over the past five years, an additional 52,000 for higher vehicles, and Ubers and Lyfts of the world in a place where it's difficult to be a vehicle owner. And that's interesting, but that's, again, that's the East Coast, that's New York City. For the majority of Americans, we're going to see increases in travel times, but it won't be that extreme. So you just have to be prepared to leave a little earlier and get on the road and, and you know, kind of plan out your travel. Leave early if you can. Use an app that has real-time traffic data. Also consider using alternate routes. And travel on the holiday itself because most people leave before the holiday and that's when you're going to hit the most traffic. Um, there's also gridlock alert days, which is today and Friday as well as next Thursday and Friday. Those are gridlock alert days in New York City. I think around the country we can just take advantage of the apps that we have and be able to see where traffic is and plan stops along the way. I, one thing we did when our kids were smaller 
and we still do it when we take a long drive is I'll look ahead on the map and find a place that is populated enough for us to stop and spend some time to kind of let off some steam. And we don't do it as much now that the kids are bigger, but when they were smaller and they would get so restless riding in the car, we would have a stop that was about halfway through. And instead of just stopping to use the restroom, we would, we need to go to Walmart. So we'd go into the Walmart and they would run around and I would only need to pick up one thing. It's not like we had to go there, but I would use that time to get whatever it was that I had on my list that I needed. And they would get to run around the store and get their energy out. And then we would eat right there at the Walmart. Sometimes it would be the subway. Sometimes it would be something else. And then by the time we did that, we would have killed an hour. But it would make for such a nicer ride in the car because no one would be complaining because they would have gotten out, used the restroom, eaten, run around, seen the inside of the Walmart, you know. And then off they were back in the car and they could watch a movie or they could read books or do some little exercises in their little workbooks and they'd be fine. They're, they were ready to go. So we have to plan that out. And I actually felt like, <laughs> just being honest here, those mental health breaks on the road were just as good for me as they were for the kids because I would get restless too. As an adult, you don't say anything, but I would be so glad to see, up. Oh, we're halfway there. That means we're going to pull off. We're going to get gas. We're going to also spend about an hour here. And that was really good for the trip. So with longer drive times, because there are so many people on the road, it might be good to plan those in and plan them around the congested times or before you get to the congestion so that you have already kind of girded yourself up to be able to put up with the extra traffic. So uh, that's it's fascinating, though, that they're tracking how many people have car registrations, how many people have bought new cars. They track that information all over the, the country. Interesting. Um, so the other big thing that I thought was ridiculous, but it's true, is that San Francisco Gate is reporting that the FBI, FBI plans a rapid DNA network for quick database checks on arrestees. So this, this could be good or it could be bad. It could be good because, yay, when they arrested someone and that person's wanted for some other major crime, then boom, you've got them and they won't get away with just, you know, hey, uh, you know, traffic stop or whatever. But you know what's bad about it? These databases can be wrong. So you get apprehended for something or they're looking at you for something and they take your DNA and they match it up to somebody who's a real criminal and you're not. And then you're in jail, you know, and you're you're spending all this money on legal expenses and you're not even the person who was the target. I'm, and I would be perfectly fine with it, but databases get hacked. Everything that we have now that's electronic seems to have the ability for evildoers to kind of come in and mess it up. And we know DNA has revolutionized modern crime fighting and helped with, you know, clues and Samples of saliva and skin and other things um, are sent to crime labs and chemists work on those. And uh, a lot of times the samples go untested because the labs are backed up. And so that's terrible. But they're now reporting on this portable machine that's about the size of a large desktop printer. And that rapid DNA machine can take a swab of DNA, analyze it, and produce a profile of 20 specific loci on the DNA strand in less than two hours. So it sounds like it's revolutionary and that it could be very helpful in making sure that DNA uh, samples don't go untested. I just hope they're going to be really, really careful with it and um, that they're going to have 
fewer of these kind of false positives and things like that. And I know for some people, the, the impetus is, well, you know, it's, it's not a big deal because it happens very rarely. Well, we can feel like that until the happens very rarely is one of us or one of our family members. And we see the havoc that gets wreaked on someone's life when they're falsely accused and, you know, validated by some DNA system for something that they just didn't do. Um, so it could also help with getting people who are doing crimes over time, like serial killers and people like that, getting them off the streets because their DNA would be collected. And when they interact with law enforcement, they'd be able to nab them and not have them, you know, continuing to go on and do these just year over year doing all of these killings. Um, so six of the machines just last month were sent to California for use in trying to identify victims of the massive wildfire. They actually used DNA from family members to create a temporary searchable database so that they could identify the remains of individuals who were killed. And there are two manufacturers of rapid DNA machines. It's ANDE of Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, they, they manufacture the machines. And there is just one drawback, which is that the machines aren't currently connected to CODIS, the FBI's combined national DNA database. So the FBI is launching a rapid DNA initiative to place the machines in police and sheriff booking stations across the country to enable law enforcement to check arrestees against the CODIS database. And when a match is made to an unsolved crime, capture the person before they're released. So I just pray for integrity in the system. And it is, it is good news for law enforcement. I'm sure they're pretty excited about this development. All right, that's the show for today. Tomorrow is Friday, so it's Friday Eve, right? So good evening from the heartland. God bless you. See you tomorrow. <laughs>